Let me introduce myself. My name is Jesse, and I am the worship pastor and administrator, which means I sort of do everything from play guitar to uh, reconcile the bank accounts in this church. And uh, Jim and Rachel are away, as you've heard, so let's see what mischief we can manage. Uh, Let's see now. There we go. We are continuing our series in the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, if you prefer. I certainly prefer that. In Caitlin's excellent sermon last week, uh, we saw Paul, Silas, Luke, and company attempt to go to various places in what is now called uh, Turkey in, in, in modern day, but was then known as Asia Minor. They were instead led by the Holy Spirit to uh, go to Europe, and uh, they met a woman called Lydia, and under her leadership, uh, a house church has begun to form that uh, will later become the destination of one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, one of his most beloved congregations. So we're going to kick off straight away with the scripture I've just given Alistair, because this is a really slick operation here. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. And the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them there securely. And following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell, and fastened their feet in the stocks. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So the jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And at the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house, set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. And when morning came, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported this message to Paul, saying, The magistrates send word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public, uncondemned men, 
who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they want to discharge us in secret. Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. So the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. Sorry I beat the crap out of you. I beg your pardon. You might want to edit that on the podcast. So, um, <laughs> and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they'd seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. So, what's God been doing in this worship this morning? I've already seen the Holy Spirit touching people in visible ways. And I have a word this morning that I feel led to give that is perhaps not going to be the most comfortable or... Um, uh, it might, be, it might be a slightly difficult word, but um, as I was praying and preparing uh, for this morning, I did feel led down this direction, so look out. In this passage, there's a number of characters, all of whom seem to be in some way and to some extent bound or imprisoned or enslaved. And yet, even from the inside of a prison cell, Paul and Silas seem to demonstrate a freedom that is completely disconnected from their circumstances. And I want to look at each of the actors in this narrative and explore the many forms of enslavement and imprisonment that they're subject to, and perhaps through this to see exactly the same forces seek to enslave and imprison us. So I want to leave as much time as possible for ministry at the end uh, of this talk because I want the Holy Spirit to do a work in you, not me. Uh, I mean... I want him to do a work in me, but I don't want to do a work in you. Does that make sense? Good. <laughs> but bef so before I get going, I just need to kind of uh, acknowledge a couple of things that I'm not going to have time to talk about in any great detail. The biggest of those is the difference between slavery as it exists in a biblical context and slavery in modern context. We just have no time to go there. Suffice it to say now that the slave girl in this narrative is clearly being used and exploited for financial gain. So this case actually bears a little bit more similarity to modern-day slavery than other examples in the Bible. Slavery in general was a mutually beneficial arrangement, in fact, that you could even volunteer yourself into. And my reasons for saying that are going to become clearer a little later on, but that's all I can say about that for now. I'm also going to skip any detailed discussion of the slave owners and of the magistrates. I'll just say this very small thing. First of all, the anger of the slave owners is ignited by loss of income, not any concern for the girl. Only the spiritual knowledge that she has access to, because it's lucrative. And the magistrates, well, they're clearly in positions of power and law enforcement, but by beating Roman citizens, they have broken the law. Roman citizens are entitled to trial. So in examining various degrees of enslavement that all these characters here are under, I say that the slave owners are enslaved by their, their love of money, essentially. And perhaps the magistrates by their fear of the, the big arm of Rome, who they have now thoroughly offended. But my focus this morning is going to be on the slave girl, 
on the jailer and on Paul and Silas. The slave girl first. Most translations say that he, she had this thing called a spirit of divination. What the original Greek text actually says is not divination, but that she had the spirit of python. <laughs> python is a strange little Greek myth about a huge serpent that was able to give oracles, telling the future and such like. Oh, where else is there a story about a talking serpent? <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, that's just yeah, an aside. Um, anyway, uh, whether Luke intended to signify that this girl had the spirit of Python, or simply a spirit that could do the same sorts of things that Python was associated with, it's unclear to me, and probably not that important, but from now on, I'm going to call her Python girl, if that's okay. This poor girl is, in fact, doubly enslaved. As a slave, she's considered the property of her owners, and she is literally enslaved to them. But she's enslaved twice over because of this resident demon. She's caught in a vicious circle where her demon actually makes her exceptionally valuable to her slave owners. She is indeed in a wretched state. And there's a number of interesting things about her encounter with Paul and Silas. First, it's not like, even though she's possessed by this demon, it's not like she's going around telling any untruths. It's not like she's lying. When she says, these men are slaves of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming the way of salvation. So my first question is, what actually is Paul's problem? She's not actually telling any lies. Secondly, interestingly, she does this for several days before Paul actually does anything about it. So my second question is, why the delay? What took Paul so long? Unfortunately, with questions like this, we can only really speculate on why he did what he did, the way he did, and when he did it. But to help with our speculations, I want to point out a couple of things, four things, actually. First, most translations say that Paul was really annoyed with her, fed up. He'd gotten worn down by her noise. And so in frustration, he just turns around and exercises this demon. But in fact, that is quite an ungenerous translation of, of the word that's used. The word is actually elsewhere most often translated as grieved or greatly disturbed. It's not completely without compassion that Paul turns to this woman and exercises the demon. although there probably was some frustration there as well, because secondly, although she was saying true things, she was doing it in an extremely disruptive way. Paul and Silas were going down to the river to pray, and there she is, yelling at the top of her voice. I was discussing this with Caitlin in the office earlier this week, and we decided that if somebody came in here as we were worshipping and started yelling, oh, you lot are believers in the Most High God, and you know the way of salvation, we'd probably approach her and say, yes, amen, shush. Even when she's saying true things, there's a time and a place, and we know that Paul likes orderly worship. We know he likes charismatic worship, but everything in its right place. Third, although she's speaking the truth, she's doing it in such a way that is prohibited by God in Scripture. She's consulting demons. Divination is expressly prohibited in Scripture. 
it may very well lead to exactly the same knowledge as do spiritual gifts, such as words of knowledge or prophecy. But the source matters. Because the demon is very unlikely to have the same motivations as God. God wants to bless and build up. Demons want to steal people from the love and the freedom that God gives them. So she might be saying something true. Why is she saying it? For what reason? Not just the profit motives of her slave owners, but also whatever motivation the demon has. So it might have looked benign, but it was anything but. And modern-day divination looks like things that you know as astrology or tarot or palmistry or Ouija boards or anything like that. And if you are involved in any of those things, they may seem innocent enough, but they are anything but. And if you're involved in any of those things, please come forward at the end of the service and be lovingly and gently set free from those undoubtedly ungodly pursuits. There's no shame whatsoever in confessing it, but there is great danger in indulging it. And fourth and last, and I think this is really important, it may be, strangely, that Paul was actually reluctant to perform this exorcism. Why would he be reluctant to perform this exorcism? Well, in the Gospels, uh, Luke records Jesus saying something really interesting about demonic possession. In uh, Luke 11, 24 to 26, if we could have that on the screen, that would be great. When the unclean spirit, this is Jesus speaking, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and put in order, and it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. (coughs) So one of the tensions of the now and not yet reality of the kingdom of God is that we've been given power and authority to command demons, but to do so may very well make the situation worse. We have to be pastorally sensitive in these cases, and it will often be worse where where the person who is being affected makes absolutely no indication of wanting to subsequently submit themselves to God. We don't know what happened to Python Girl after that, but I still think that her future well-being must have been a factor in Paul's delay in exorcism. So that's the poor slave girl enslaved doubly by her demon and by her slave owner. So what about the jailer? This poor jailer had one job. (laughs) To be fair, he does his job really, really well. He puts Silas and Paul into the innermost part of the prison fastens their feet in stocks. He'd been told to keep them secure, and these guys really, you know, the way they were locked up, they were going nowhere. He doesn't know, though, and this is a really serious point, he doesn't know about the prison hokey-cokey. <laughs> Jim told us about this a couple of weeks ago, and I think this is a deep insight into Scripture. This is not the apostles' first dance move. In Acts 4, Pete and John go in, Pete and John go out. 
Acts 5 and 12, they go in, out, in, out. And you know what comes next, right? Shake it all about. And so God does. You could argue that the region was prone to earthquakes or something like that, but to be quite honest with you, I didn't even bother to look that up because, to the best of my knowledge, earthquakes aren't really responsible for picking locks and opening doors, right? (laughs) They're not quite as subtle as that or strategic as that. So this is the power of God. As they're worshipping, the power of God comes, sets them free. And immediately the jailer picks up a sword and he's about to commit suicide, probably to retain some kind of honor after the escape of his prisoners. Something I'd personally verify before, you know, reaching for my sword. Um, But anyway, he stopped from his suicide. He's suddenly filled with fear and trembling and he asks the apostles what he must do to be saved. And when I read this, I wondered, what does he want to be saved from? Who is he captive to? I wonder, it it seems from various uh, encounters in the New Testament that the rank and file of the Roman um, military and security forces were well placed to understand the hierarchies of power. They each have their own little jurisdictions in their life, and they're each under authority as well, like the Roman centurion who asks Jesus to heal his son. This jailer has recognized that there's a power here greater than any he's ever known. And this power is on the side of the prisoners. So he's afraid. If their boss can cause an earthquake that opens up chains and doors, and they're not even bothered about it. They don't even take the advantage that they have, and you know they're just busy singing songs. What the heck is that boss going to do to me, the one who imprisoned them? And so he gets on the floor trembling and asks, how can he be saved? It's my suggestion that having witnessed the incredible freedom of those whom he had locked in these cells has now awakened him to the reality of his own captivity. When you see freedom, when you see joy, you want it. And you know you haven't got it. He sees freedom and then knows that he is not free. And Paul and Silas gently lead him to Jesus. And then they experience the tenderness and hospitality of this prison guard who no longer seems to fear anything, whether the retribution of his commanders or the judgment of God. So the jailer was enslaved, but through this encounter with God's power, he was set free. And now, Paul and Silas, their response to having been beaten and imprisoned is amazing. I find it so inspirational that they begin to worship their in the prison cell, smarting from their wounds. And yet they're free and full of joy and giving glory and praise to God. And this is by no means a tacit approval of the way that they've been treated, right? Because we know 
In fact, Paul says explicitly in his letter to the Thessalonians that while he was in Philippi, he suffered and was treated shamefully. And later in this passage, he objects to any attempt at a cover-up. And he uses his Roman citizenship to his advantage and to the advantage of the message of the gospel. And when Paul speaks later to his beloved Philippian church in his letter, he says this, and I think this illuminates something of the, uh, the mood and the disposition of Paul and Silas in the cells. He says this in his letter to the Philippians in 4, 12 to 13. I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think it's this secret that lifts him even in the time of trial and adversity. And I want to know this secret. I really wish that I hungered for God as much in the good times as in the bad. Because when we worship, it's there that strongholds are broken and captives are set free. There is something incredible about the way that trial and adversity create a deep hunger and thirst for the presence of God in worship. Just last weekend, the office staff uh, came to worship here on a Sunday, having had a week of some pretty deep spiritual battle. And we were tired with tears and feeling pretty bruised and bloody. But the Lord met with us in such sweet tenderness, bringing healing and freedom. And we all come. We all come with our stuff. And it seems like the harder we found it, the more God wants to break in. I'm so grateful for that, but I also want to remember and rejoice in his love when I'm not driven to it by my troubles. I want to know the secret of worshiping in good times as well as in bad. So what is this secret? And this is here now my main point. I want to know how it is that even while in prison, Paul and Silas know freedom. How is it that their freedom and joy is so completely disconnected from their circumstances? I think the answer is pretty weird. But I think it's this, that they were slaves. They knew perfect freedom, but they were in fact as enslaved as anyone else in this narrative. The big question is to what or to whom? Python Girl had it right when she said, these are slaves of the Most High God. How do I know she had it right? Because Paul himself repeats this idea many, many times about himself in Scripture, in his letters to the Romans and to Titus. You've just got to look at verse 1 of chapter 1. I, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And it's not just Paul. Other New Testament authors do exactly the same thing. John in Revelation 1, 1. Peter in 2 Peter 1, 1. Peter talks a lot about slavery to God. 
And it's not just Paul and John and Peter, but also Jesus' blood brothers, James, 1, 1. Jude, 1, 1. Slave of Jesus Christ. So what kind of enslavement is this? That Paul, Silas, Peter, John, James, and Jude all are rejoicing in. We learn about it in Romans chapter 6. You have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. The advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there is freedom in slavery. George Orwell kind of got it right. Almost. It does sound like doublethink, right? Freedom is slavery. Well, to a certain extent, it is a bit of doublethink. Because to do justice to the testimony of Scripture, you have to sometimes hold what feel like two competing truths, two competing narratives intention and affirm the truth of both of them. Does eternal life start now or after we've died? The answer is yes. <laughs> Has God's kingdom already come or is it yet to come? Yes. <laughs> are we slaves to God or are we free? Most emphatically, yes. We are created to worship. It's our default setting. And no amount of hacking can change that basic premise of our operating system. So if we're not worshipping God, we're worshipping something else. And it's, it, it's exactly the same with slavery. If we're not enslaved to God, we're enslaved to something else. It's only by binding ourselves to God who made us for himself that we will ever know true freedom. John Wimber used to say, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? It's the same principle here. I am a slave of God. Whose slave are you? So as we come in uh, to land here, I just want to prod you with a few questions that will hopefully lead you once again uh, to the foot of the cross. And hopefully come forward, be prayed here in the front with trusted family members of home, group, home groups here at Kingdom Vineyard. The questions are these. To what or to whom have you given power? And by giving that power have therefore become enslaved. We give power to all sorts of things. For example, as soon as you, as you, as soon as you believe that if only this thing happened, or if only I could get this, then dot, 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 things will be okay. You've become a slave to that circumstance. What kind of hurts 
are you holding on to, waiting for an apology that will never come? And even if it did, you would still feel wretched. Whose voice have you allowed to define you? The voice that constantly tells you that you're worthless? Or is there someone's encouragement that you absolutely need to hear so that you don't feel worthless? To whose tune are you dancing? To what ideology are you clinging to? Is money your master? The lack of it or the gain of it? Is sex your master or sexuality? To whatever we say we need or must have in order to be free, it is to that thing that we will always be enslaved and will never know true freedom. We must consider the loss or the gain of such things completely worthless next to the incomparable riches of knowing Jesus Christ. Do you want to know freedom in all circumstances? Let's learn then the secret that Paul knows. That enslavement to Jesus Christ is where we find strength, peace, freedom, whatever the circumstances. Let's invite the Holy Spirit now to come and break those chains and lead us into greater freedom. Why don't you stand? I'll pray. If you feel atted, as my young friends tell me, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you take whatever words I've said refine them by your spirit and cause whatever is good to land as a seed and take root in each of us this morning. And whatever is bad, Lord, would you cause it just to perish immediately. But Holy Spirit, we long for freedom. Would you come now and show us the ways that we are not free? Show us what we have given our trust to, given our power to. And Holy Spirit, come now and break the chains. We declare that where your spirit is, there is 
freedom.